Hello, and welcome back to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. 1A is designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church, and I'm Josh Fleming, the pastoral intern for Discipleship. In today's episode, we're continuing our discussion on chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession, and we'll be examining the aseity of God, that is, God's self-existence. If you have any comments or questions about our show today, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can email us at 1a at firstprescolumbia.org. We hope this, is a, this ministry is a blessing to you and to those around you. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome back to 1A. I am your host, Josh Squires, and with me, as always, are the two other Joshes and the Mark. So <laughs> let me welcome them in. First, of course, y'all know Josh Adair, Minister of Discipleship, First Pres Hattiesburg, former intern here. Josh, how are you doing today? Doing well, and you might as well call us Josh and the Three Stooges. <laughs> <laughs> right, that doesn't so quite play know. on the number of Joshes <laughs> that this podcast has, which is an inordinate number of Joshes. In fact, that may just need to be the new name for the podcast is inordinate number of Joshes. So. That sounds great. I actually like that. That's better. And then, of course, Josh Fleming, our pastoral intern, no longer to college. That's right. That's right. Transitioning into the role of discipleship. discipleship. So I'm excited about that. And also excited to be with you guys again today to discuss the Westminster Confession of Faith. Wonderful. Wonderful. So thanks for being with us. And, of course, my intern, Mark Capper, pastoral intern to biblical counseling. Mark, welcome. Hey, guys. So glad to be here today. And, yeah, looking forward to diving back into Chapter 2. Yeah. Speaking of, Fleming, why don't you kick us off? Tell us where we've been and where we are headed today. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're in chapter two of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we're looking here at, at subpoint two today. And I, I think what we're going to find is this going to have a lot to say to us for our lives, for our own just spiritual health. And, um, but also I think it's going to inform a lot of things that we could do. We could bring into the counseling room. I'd like to just start us off. I'm going to read just a phrase here and kind of get the discussion going. It's just this sort of the opening line from chapter 2.2. I think this is going to be a good jumping off point to get our discussion going. It says, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. And we could go on from there and read uh, the rest of really the whole rest of the chapter. It is all gold. But yeah, I just want to kind of throw that out there as a starting point and see how does this opening phrase here, description of God, how does it speak to us, to our souls? How, how should our listeners think this through? What, what does this have to do with counseling? It's a great question, Fleming. I think this is actually really vital. Mm. Mm. This is getting at what traditionally in theology we would call aseity. Mm. Aseity mm. means that God has existence in and of himself. He is not a dependent creature. He, mm. he doesn't need us. He doesn't need anyone. And that, that's really what the, yeah, the they confession... On, they go on to say almost exactly that. Yeah, yeah is, is highlighting here for us. Notice what they say that he has in and of himself. All life, all glory, all goodness, all blessedness. Mm. In other words... He stands in need of nothing. Mm. Now, when you and I are in relationship, we do so in an interdependent way. Mm. Hopefully not codependent. 
Right. Right. And, and, right. and by that, just quickly, what is meant from a psychology perspective is for me to be okay, you must be okay. Mm. So all of my life is dependent upon you being okay. Well, everyone has bad days. Right. Right. And it's okay for you to have a bad day and me to have a good day. Mm. And just because you're having a bad day doesn't mean now I'm infected by your emotional stance and therefore I'm having a bad day, but rather that I should be impacted by it. Mm. Your bad day then gets me to say, oh, is there something I can do for you? Is there a way I can help you? Can I minister to you? But it's still okay for me to have a bad day or for Mm. me to have a good day while you have a bad day, right? Mm. That's an interdependent rather than codependent, but we still are interdependent. That is to say that in relationship, you are doing something for me and I am doing something for you. Mm. Maybe it is that you are helping me to bear my burdens, Galatians 6, 2, and therefore to lighten the full load of the weight of life this side of glory maybe it's that you have a pickup truck and i need to move a bed (laughs) right and so you're the friend with the pickup truck maybe it's some other reason but but in our relationships even in our most intimate relationships all four of us are married we get something out of those relationships Right. There's something about our relationship with our wife where we're there, especially as men, to sacrifice for our wife that she may be more and more sanctified like Christ. But there's something that we get from her. Mm. There's something that we get in fellowship and union that we need. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's that's God's declaration even before the fall that it's not good that man be alone. There's something that we get that we need from these relationships. Mm. Well, God stood in need of nothing. He had perfect intimacy and relationship in the Trinitarian nature of who he is. And being perfectly free, perfectly independent, he still chose to be in relationship with you. Mm. Do you understand? Where you and I need to be in relationships so that we can get something. He doesn't get anything from us. Mm. Also, because he is perfectly omniscient, he knows all of the terribleness that is going to mean that is going to require and cost in order to be in relationship with us. Mm-hmm. So again, if we think about our marriage relationships, all four of us have made vows and those mm-hmm. vows only and ever reflect the covenant promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Mm-hmm. It's just an expansion of that one covenant process when we, when we make our marriage vows and yet it has cost us in ways that we never knew it would cost us in our marriages. Mm-hmm. Mark, you've been married the shortest amount of time here, only a matter of months. All of five months. All of five months. And yet it is still required of you things that you just never knew it would require of you mm. uh, when you make that particular commitment to another human being. Absolutely. And so we make commitments like that naively. And if we saw the benefit that we would get, we would probably still undergo those particular commitments, but but we would also have a better understanding of all the ways it was going to require sacrifice. Mm. Well, here is God who doesn't need and will not benefit from it at all and yet must pay the highest price imaginable, mm. physical and spiritual death. He, he must actually have a rent in the intimacy of the Godhead for the first and only time of all existence. And all of that to come into relationship with you and you don't give him anything. Mm. That's love. That's what it means to love. Yeah. That that he would give it all to get you, even though it benefits him nothing. Nothing. Man. Right? So yeah. that's beautiful. <laughs> the the doctrine of aseity 
speaks to us so much of God's love and of our value. When you begin to look around and the world tells you that your value comes from how hard you work, the accolades that you build up, how beautiful you are, how much resources you have, how athletic you are, all of that. And what what this doctrine tells you is that you are infinitely valuable, not because of anything in you, but because he who is infinite values you enough to die for you. Mm. Right? That's that's where your values hit. So this this doctrine, though it seems it can seem so esoteric, right? To talk about a God who is sufficient in and of himself, to talk about a God who has all this blessedness and stuff in himself, makes him seem so far away. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's super essential to who we are and helps us understand who he is in relation to us. We've jumped right in. I like this. Yeah. This is great. I feel like, I almost feel like we could stop there. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. It's always been there. Like our relationships are always give and take on some level. I mean, I, I get that, but I've not, you know, as you're saying that it's like, it's for God. It's always, he's giving, we're taking, we're not giving him anything back. He didn't need to. Yeah. Like you said, he had perfect communion within the Godhead, within the Trinity. That's right. And it, I mean, it says that he is perfect in his glory. Right. Like, so, mm-hmm. so what is our job? Well, our job is to glorify God. Right. But, but he's already perfect in glory. He has all glory. Well, if he already has it and it's perfect, what more can we give? Yeah. It, it's not additive. Mm. It's responsive. Mm. It's to glorify him is, is, should be the natural response of the believer when they recognize who he is and what he's done for them. That's good. We can't in any way add to his glory. I read, I can't remember, I think it was from class recently I read, and they were talking about when you, when you glorify God and what you're actually doing. And the, mm-hmm. the analogy this author used, I want to get your thoughts on it. I can't mm-hmm. remember, man, I wish I could remember where it was right now. But it was it was basically this. If he goes to the, the town next, you know, down the road or whatever, and tells everyone there how beautiful his wife is, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. he's, he's telling everybody in that town, he's not making his wife Beautiful. any more beautiful right. than she already is. He's just, he's letting others know he's declaring it. He's, yeah. and I think that was a helpful, what do you think about that as an illustration? Does that? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a helpful illustration. I think it gets to one aspect of what we do when we glorify God. Yeah. And that is maybe the declarative mm-hmm. external aspect of what we're doing when we glorify him. There's also an internal aspect of what it's doing to our own hearts. Yeah. And how our hearts should naturally respond in a way that seeks his glory. Right. 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 Anybody who knows me and who's been around me for more than five minutes knows that I end my prayers in the same way every single time. Right. How do I end my prayers for your glory and honor's sake? Mm. Right. And it's just, I I don't know how else to end my prayers because it's the genuine Mm. flow of what I hope my life to be is a life that Mm -hmm. is effusive with that which praises to the glory and honor mm. of God, mm. you know? So, so I think, I think there's mm. an aspect of which, yeah, you, you go and you tell and you, you, you bring God glory in your actions to people who don't know him. You're not adding glory to him. Right. He is one who deserves glory, but there's also another aspect in which I think it's just a response naturally mm. for the believer. Right. Mm. As we think, you, of, I, have a, I, have a, I have a question for you guys. I have a question for you guys. Do you sure. think that most, uh, counseling issues, and this is this is a sweeping statement. Could be reduced on one level 
to us striving for our own self-existence apart from God. So are, you're saying in, in one way is, are all counseling issues, is there an aspect in which there's vainglory involved? Yeah. We're, we're looking to glorify ourselves? Yeah. I think I would stop short of saying all because there are times in which you are counseling with someone and they are simply suffering. Mm-hmm. absolutely right so that's right when someone mm-hmm. comes in let me give you a, a real world example i saw someone i will you know keep any any particular identifiers secret but i saw a young man who came in yesterday and you know you what you normally do like okay tell me why you're here you know what brings you here and there were tears immediately mm-hmm. and that's not uncommon tears happen especially as you're talking about something you've right. probably struggled with for a very long time and he started with the words, my dad. And then there were a lot of tears. And he said, I haven't used those two words together in over a decade. Wow. Mm. My dad died suddenly and tragically when I was a kid. Mm. And I've not been able to talk about it. He's not been able to use the two words, my dad, for a decade. Mm. Right? And I'm not sure that vainglory is at the center of that. You're absolutely right. I think it's just suffering in a fallen world. Mm. Mm. Now, I think there's a lot of vainglory. In fact, if you go back and look at my very first article, not this sounds vainglorious because I'm now pointing to myself. That's stupid. <laughs> but um, I'm just using this for a historical to give you give you a sense. If you go back and look at my very first article I ever wrote for Design God, I think it was back in 2014 or 15. It's what's the biggest problem I see in counseling, and my answer to the number one thing I see in counseling is pride. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Adair, I think you're you're on to something in the sense that vainglory is at the center of a lot, a lot of counseling issues. I just would want to stop short of saying all. That's really helpful to clarify that. Uh, but I also think even as we talk about the aseity of God, it's like most what most people are looking for when they come into counseling is that their lives have taken on some form of confusion, suffering, su- suffering uh, as a result of fallen world, suffering as a result of fallen sin, their own sinfulness. There's there's a variety of things. And, and so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right in pointing that vainglory is not at the heart of all things. But I would also say that what is at the root of what most people desire and long for is to know the very sense of life, glory, goodness, and blessedness that God has within himself. To be welcomed into the fellowship of the one who is blessed and needs nothing and yet delights to be with you and delights in the worship that you would give him he, he delights for you to see that. He delights for you to know that in himself, in his self-existence, because that's, that's really like when you're hoping to make sense of a situation, like anyone who comes into a situation like that, I would say that what they are essentially longing for is to know something of the blessedness of a God who has no need and yet who smiles upon people who are incredibly needy and meets their needs with mm-hmm. his abundant self-existence. And so uh, so like in one sense, you can look at, 
it's, I'm just thinking as I, I sort of turn this idea of God to Sadie over in my head, it's like, well, like you can make a strong argument, like you said, about, you know, vaingloriousness is, uh, pride is at the source of a lot of what we do. Sometimes it's also suffering, but you, what you can't get around is the idea that what every single person who comes into a counseling suite wants is they want to know that there is someone who is self-existent who can actually meet their needs in the midst of these moments. Yeah. Mm. And and the beauty of our triune God is he answers and says, I am that person. I am that I am, actually. That's really helpful, Josh. And that's a great point, Josh. I, I think one of, one of the things I have here in the the notes, the show notes that we're we all working off of is this quote from it's, uh, one of my favorite theologians, Herman Bavink. And what he, he opens the very first sentence in one of his theological works is God and God alone is man's highest good. And those things you were talking about a minute ago, the confusion, the, you know, pride, vainglory, but even just the suffering that we experience in this world, even if it's not due to our own sin, it is due to the fallen world, you know, the fallenness of creation. It's due to sin in some sense. And I think what you've just done there is point us back to what, what the only thing that will satisfy and make things right is this God who is man's highest good. Amen. Yeah. And one part of the first half here of this second point of chapter two that I think is, can be really comforting to someone in the counseling room is, is this section right here. God not standing in need of any creatures, which he hath made nor deriving Mm. any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. Mm. Just reflecting on the fact that God has made us as human beings in his image and that we manifest his glory in ourselves by what we do, in and through the lives that we live. Do we do so perfectly in a fallen world? Of course not. That's one thing I think that is also something that I think some of our more fundamentalist brothers and sisters can miss as well is just the beauty in in culture and in the world outside of Christianity. Because I think that's part of what Paul gets to in Romans 1. So, following a little bit further the track that I'm leading us on here, look at the beauty produced in music and in Mm. art, in sculpture, uh, Mm. by people throughout the world in all sorts of different cultures that are pagan, that have never heard of Yahweh, the God of Israel, made manifest in Jesus Christ, who do not submit their lives to him, who we will not see in heaven, and yet they experienced a bit of who he is because of how he manifested his glory uh, in them, because they were still, and, and even those today who are not believers, they are still manifesting his own glory because they are made in the image of God. And, and I think especially, as, as Josh Squires mentioned, for someone who is suffering uh, in the counseling room, not necessarily for every situation of suffering, but maybe for a, a, a suffering over, over personal image or 
or just self-worth if they uh, if it's someone especially who just is having difficulty understanding why they should go on what is the point to life i think this is an immensely uh, comforting truth that mm-hmm. the god who is all sufficient in himself is yet pleased and has been pleased to manifest his glory in mm-hmm. us and and that even though we are fallen and we still experience the brokenness of this world right now the goal of history is for god to restore us Mm. to the ultimate manifestation of his glory one day when he mm. will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will be in his presence uh, forever. What an immensely hopeful truth that can be for, for those in the counseling room. Mm. Yeah, that'll preach. That will preach. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, they, in some ways, they need to know that their struggles are affirmed. In some ways, someone who's struggling with self-image or self-worth, while that can seem very vain, and unloving to the people in an immediate uh, interdependent relationship with them, as Josh has pointed out. There's a sense in which what they are actually striving for is they want to know they have value and worth. And to know that this God who is self-existent actually reveals his glory in and unto and by them and upon them, as you said, Mark, is, is actually something that deeply speaks to their need as a created being uh, mm. to to have something of their very fundamental hope of being creaturely affirmed, even if that's something that's controlling them in that instance and, and destroying their relationships by how they might look at it. Or it, it could be something that's a, a malady of suffering they, they've experienced that they can't see. This speaks to both audiences and says, like, this this is the one, this God who whose smile that you long for actually smiles upon you as you are created and even still simultaneously fallen and says the the worst that you long for is actually there because he's made you in his image Mm. Uh, he knows who you are he knows Mm. and has revealed himself to you he's not just some esoteric being as josh uh, squire said earlier it's not just some sort of esoteric truth but this self-existent one longs to bless you with his glory and his face and to long to bless you with the fellowship of his presence. And so I, I think that that's immensely helpful that you also point that out, Mark, because most people, not only are they looking for that smile, as I said, of the one whose smile is ultimately worthy to be recognized and seen, they're looking for the affirmation that their trouble is really, really, really significant and it's not just their subject subjective experience it's it's something that speaks beyond that thanks josh yeah that's that's really helpful yeah it almost makes you think of like you know you're a a product of you know the master artist or you know the perfect craftsman whatever it is and like you've you've been created with purpose i think of you know ephesians 2 and like you've been given there's such dignity given to us in this doctrine of, of the Imago Dei that we're created in God's image. All that dignity, all that honor comes from who God himself is. It's mm. like if, if the greatest being that could possibly exist makes you in his image, like you have inherent, um, it speaks to so many issues. Uh, I think that plague us in so many ways. Yeah. Just considering who God is and then who we are in light of that. That's, mm. that's very helpful. And then going further, Mark, uh, 
that he reveals his glory three uh, by in, in by unto and upon them his creatures though he has no need of them to do so. The next sentence says, He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. Mm. Uh, So this is, I think this is that attitude of Psalm 8 that looks at the heavens and looks at the God who is in his beauty, glory, and goodness, life itself, mm. and also contemplates his immense condescension or his humility to relate himself to man and sees the immense beauty and majesty of God who, who does so and that he rules uh, over his creatures and does whatever he himself pleases for them. The God, it, it comforts the person in the counseling suite, because the God who is in himself life, glory, goodness, and blessedness is also the same God who sovereignly rules and exercises his authority over you for your good. I don't know. There's just a wealth of practical pastoral help and encouragement that's found here. Mm. Josh, that reminds me of something Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says to his disciples and the crowds, if even you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much Mm -hmm. more our Father in heaven? And I think that's just something that's often lost in today's world. We think of God, you know, either on... (laughs) On one hand, as a big Santa Claus in the sky who we just ask him, you know, for the Maserati or the Lamborghini and, um, (laughs) you know, God's just going to give us all that we want. But on the other hand, viewing God as a sort of taskmaster that like, oh, well, I messed up again and, uh, you know, I just I can't ever make God happy because I just, you know, keep messing up, you know, like, no. You know, if even you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does our Father in Heaven mm. um, know how to give uh, good gifts to us? And I think that especially, sort of as I, I said earlier, is seen throughout uh, the pagan cultures of just how God has gifted those made in His image with so mm. many talents and blessings that, sadly, that we often squander and that we don't use for to to turn back toward him for his honor and glory. We use it to glorify ourselves. And mm. yet and yet he is still the giver of those good gifts, as as James says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. Mm. God is the source of, of all of our good gifts, even if we don't recognize him for it and and yeah, and we can really rest in and and find comfort in that. Mm, that's so good. I mean, I, I think once again, we've seen that the, the confession does not disappoint when you come to look at it and say, let's, let's consider what these words mean and how they might inform our own spiritual walks and then how we counsel others. It's, it's gold. So what, what a treasure we have here from the Westminster divines mm. reminds me again, another passage we've thrown out a couple passages here, but Psalm 73 says, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And you look at this, what the divines are saying is, I mean, he has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. Like, isn't that who you want to be around? Like, mm. a God like mm. that? 
it's just incredibly encouraging to sit and think deep thoughts about our God and let let that speak to your soul and to the issues. Uh, Hopefully what you'll be able to find over time is that the issues that plague you are not, maybe they're not as big as as they seem. I've heard a quote, something that like in your walk of faith, you may encounter very large giants, but to those giants, you can say, I have an even bigger God. Mm. There are all sorts of, of challenges that we are going to face in a broken world. But God is more powerful. God is the one who will deliver us through those challenges. Mm. Not always from them, but but he will deliver us through them. That's great. As we trust in him. Yeah. I mean, I I just, again, I think this chapter of the confession is, is incredibly helpful for us, even in light of our modern age. Because uh, mm. you... I mean, you think about it too, uh, as, as we were talking and, and talking about how God is self-existent and he's the one who's, he's the one whose smile you want to receive, one who you long to know that you're held in good standing before. Mm. We live in an age where people who are in charge are considered sort of, sort of skeptically to where you can't really trust because there's something beyond the pale of your comprehension of how they rule and, and exercise their authority and independence that's actually not in your interest. We sort of question authorities and question powers. Mm. And for most people who are coming into the counseling room, especially in our contemporary age, like there's people who come from great suffering that's been hidden in the course of their lives. They, they've been taken advantage of, and sometimes they've hid things themselves and things that they would never open up to another person about. And yet, you know, the confession just continues to, to to push that sovereign, self-existent God upon us because it's it's telling us about the God of Scripture as the one before whom all things are open and manifest in his sight. Mm-hmm. There's nothing before him that's contingent or uncertain. He's, his knowledge is perfect. It's infinite and, mm-hmm. and infallible and independent separate from even what the creature knows about a situation so that he is absolutely certain as to what the right is in that situation that every counsel he faces. And he's, he who is the same one who has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness is the one who rules over your situation mm. is not surprised by it in your uncertainty. And he's actually exercising your good in the midst of it for what we know to be true of believers. And yes, Romans eight twenty eight sort of refrain of all things he uses for good. That's right. And so even even those like hidden and unrevealed things that a counselee is coming into, you know, I think of the story that Squire shared of a of a young man who wasn't able to use the phrase my dad, who was kept silent in grief and suffering for ten years. Even though the counselor enters into that, and they, they're, they're, you know, I think we're all sort of heartbroken at the realization of the grief that that young man experienced. Like, mm. God has grieved with that person mm. from the day that it has happened. Mm. And he knows the situation better than even the counselor and the counseling mm. suite does. Mm. So that even as a fallen human being recounts their suffering or recounts their sin, we know a good and blessed God who wants to bring something of his blessing into this dependent creature's life that sits before us. And 
you know, it's just so humbling to sit before a God who enters into weakness and sadness like that. And it's incredibly edifying. It's just immense, the God that's presented in this chapter of the Confession. No, that's great. When you think of all the issues, the maladies of modern life, and we have a God who, think about Hebrews and how he is, he he knows how to sympathize with us. We have that Mm. kind of God. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, guys. This has been fun. We really enjoyed this discussion. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is Josh Fleming signing off for Josh Squires, Josh Adair, Mark Capper. Thank you, and God bless.